recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. Let's go. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up, turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchy and you and Christy. Okay, welcome to episode 19 of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your host, Cam McMurchy, along with you and Christy. Hello, Cameron. Ewan is an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada. His firm is online at duntroonllp.law. I'm a PR guy based in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications newsletter. And you can find that online at digitalbitspr.com. If you enjoy the podcast, if you subscribe and you like it, please tell a friend. It's our only way to get the word out. And you can also follow us on social media on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook with the account name PR law podcast all one word and we're also on youtube and soundcloud if you'd like to subscribe to us that way and we're on patreon if you support us there that also means a lot to us you can find that via our website at prlawpodcast.com and click support the show lastly we'd be happy to take your questions uh, on an upcoming show so you can uh, post those on social media with the hashtag prlawpod p-r-l-a-w-p-o-d and we will get to those as well we've got all kinds of fun stuff to talk about today. Ewan, what's happening with you? Well, Cameron, I got my uh, my nice cup of coffee here. Got a lovely cup of coffee this morning. Uh, you know, I don't know if people realize this. I know we, we talk about recorded live in Toronto and Hong Kong, but that means that you and I are doing this 12 hours apart, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm just sort of starting my day as you're kind of winding down your day. You know, maybe we just as, as, a, as a point of consistency, you should have like a a whiskey or something, you know, some sort of, <laughs> well, how do you know I haven't, that's going to calm you down while I've got, you know, a stimulant that's going to kind of hype me up, you know, the, over the course of the show. And hopefully we meet in the middle. Yeah. I'm actually more envious of you because like, I'm not a huge morning person. I, I get a lot more work done at night. I just work better at night. I don't like that. It's not by choice. Uh, but the Sunday mornings, the one morning that I, that I genuinely like waking up, having a coffee, looking through the news or whatever. Uh, it's a, it's a nice time. So I'm a little bit envious you get to do the show then. Cause I imagine you're a bit more fresher than I am at the end of the day. Well, that's funny because I kind of would love to do the show at night. I guess grass <laughs> is always greener on the other side, right? Yeah, probably Maybe we probably should, a good example. Uh, we should, when we can fly, of course, internationally, we should, you know, hop on a plane and, uh, and do the show from, from each other's homes and uh, get a sense of what it's like on, well, at the other end of you know, the candle. In any normal year, I mean, you and I both tend to do quite a bit of travel. Uh, I mean, last year, I was all over the place. And so the show would have been would have been uh, recorded from all kinds of different locations. I think it could make the show quite interesting too. a little added twist to it. But uh, with COVID-19, I, I, you know, you and honestly on, on this topic, in fact, I was getting set to go back to work tomorrow in the office. So in Hong Kong, we've been home now for three, four weeks uh, after having been back at work. So it's kind of gone back and forth as we have new outbreaks. And, you know, the number of cases here have come down. We were over 100 for uh, per day for a couple of weeks. But in the last 14 days, we've been under 100 and it was really coming down until today. And so, you know, we've got a chat group of all of the Hong Kong staff at my company. And somebody said, like, hey, are, are we going into the office tomorrow? Because we hadn't heard anything yet. And uh, there was uh, a big outbreak at the container terminal at, in Hong Kong. Uh, so we actually had 74 new cases today, and 34 of those are traced to this outbreak. And so it looks like, uh, you know, just, just a couple of hours ago, I received word that actually, there, you know, there, there will be no more working in the office this week either. So uh, it's home for another five days at least. 
Wow. Yeah. You know, I don't even, I don't really even pay attention to numbers anymore. I mean, I guess I do, you know, I sort of get a, a notification pushed to my phone typically from, you know, from the CBC or something like that stating the number of cases. So, you know, I quickly see, okay, this number of new cases in, in a day, but I'm kind of, I'm kind of past the point of really, really digging in. I guess I'm, I'm concerned in terms of the down the road, because of course our, our daughter is going to school in September um, she starts kindergarten and we're kind of, we're obviously very conscious of what that's going to look like. So we're sort of monitoring things in, in that regard. But otherwise, you know, I don't really, I, I just, I don't know. I kind of get up and I, and I go about my, my work day. And I guess that's easier for me than for a lot of other people because I can work from home. I'm, I'm set up effectively to work remotely. If I, if I really need to meet with someone, I can go into the office and we can sort of do that socially distanced. Um, but this doesn't really impact my day to day per se anymore, which I guess is a good thing. Um, yeah, it's it's just kind of, it's kind of a blur at this point anyway, you know, it's a, it is a privileged position. I think that you're in having your own law firm and things like that. You've got a lot of flexibility and I I do worry. I mean, I don't check the numbers every day either. I I usually try and check before we record the show just to see where we're at. And I do pick up on trends though. Like I saw an article earlier this week that talked about BC for instance, and now the province of BC and Canada had been doing very well for, for a long time, uh, including, you know, a New York times featured article on Dr. Bonnie Henry, the provincial health officer there uh, for the good work Mm -hmm. That had been done. But BC is now back to as bad as it was at the height of COVID-19. The numbers have gone up a lot following the August long weekend, which is a big time for people to socialize. And 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 it's back up to the same bad numbers. I saw in Toronto as well that there was a there was a case of uh, an employee at a strip club there in Toronto on Young Street and possibly exposed to 550 people. So it could be kind of a, a, a big issue. And I saw your premier saying this is going to be an awkward thing for guys who get home to their families to say, oops, I might have been there uh, when this guy was working, you know, just to, yeah. to try and track it down. But uh, it's still I, I, I do think people should still pay attention because you run the risk of kind of putting it out of your mind. But it's still dangerous. It's still dangerous out there. And I think people have to try and stay vigilant. You're you're you know, you're right. And that's really good. Good advice. Um uh, yeah, I, I, maybe, maybe it's just <laughs> ask me tomorrow. If you ask me tomorrow, I'll probably feel differently. But, uh, uh, today specifically, I'm just, you know, I, 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 I don't know. Yes. Just, it's, it's a blur, but you're right. It, it, I mean, people have to continue to be vigilant. I don't want to suggest, um, you know, people should just, uh, sit back and, and not pay attention and not be vigilant about these things. I mean, you know, I'm still pretty militant about wearing my mask everywhere I go and socially distancing and avoiding, you know, um, crowds and whatnot, particularly when I'm out with my family. Um, all that stuff obviously remains important. Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to askusatprlawpodcast.com. That's all one word, askusatprlawpodcast.com. Or on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. That's hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. All right, what's happening in the land of uh, workplace employment? 
<laughs> well, it's an exciting world, Cameron. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm sure it's, it's more exciting than a lot of people think, actually. Well, and w- what I wanted to talk about today was was pretty big news. Uh, I'm sure you probably saw this as well. I don't know how you missed it. It was covered in pretty much every um, every, you know, paper that that I happened to to check check on anyway. And that was the the news about the former McDonald's CEO, Steve Easterbrook, being sued by the company uh, for what looks like uh, probably about 40 million bucks. So the background here, Cam, you know, Easterbrook was fired last year as CEO following an investigation into his conduct and, and investigators learned that he had had a consensual office relationship with an employee over text and, and video. Can I pause the, you just for a second? Cause I, I, yeah. I am familiar with Steve Easterbrook because I mean, I've worked at the exchange for a long time and he was big in business circles. So even further back, you mentioned him getting fired last year. I, I remember when he became the chief executive of McDonald's, which was in 2015. And at the time the company was having a very difficult time. Um, sales and revenues were down and there was a lot of faith put in him to turn things around. And he did, he was a star chief executive. Uh, the, the McDonald's share price rose ninety six percent while Steve Easterbrook was CEO from from the November or sorry from twenty fifteen to November last year when he was fired. And he's the guy that brought in, for instance, the McDonald's all day breakfast that made like the sausage and egg McMuffin available all day long. So so he's he's a very very successful and he was a very highly regarded chief executive. So you can take it from there. Well, that's revolutionary, Cam. McDonald's breakfast all day long. It actually turned into a big deal. I thought it would kind of take away from the, uh, you know, the specialness of the morning, but I, but I guess not. Hey, I guess people really like their egg McMuffins, even in they the middle do. of the night. They do. Um, okay. Right. So, well, that, that was good. I, I didn't, I didn't know that particularly in terms of the increase in, in, in the value of the company that, that he brought over his, over his course as CEO. So that's, that's, that's good to know. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the investigation found out that he'd had this this relationship with this woman that it, it, it was deemed to be consensual. And he, you know, Easterbrook denied any physical or sexual relationship with the employer, you know, or any other employees. Uh, now, of course, that doesn't make it OK. The relationship was contrary to company policy. Uh, the you know fiduciary obligation as a as a CEO and 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 executive at the company and obviously all the power imbalances it's not it's not a good image for the company and obviously I'm sure you can you can speak to that a bit Cam but yeah and he uh, he so, didn't fight it either so when this was discovered I mean obviously the board agreed to let him go and he wrote to employees he said this was a mistake given the values of the company I agree with the board that it's time for me to move on so it looked like that was just going to be the end of it but it wasn't. Yeah. And he was, so he was let go on a without cause basis, right? I mean, meaning the company wasn't alleging there was any sort of gross misconduct on his part. They let him go. They paid him his severance, his, you know, whatever stocks he was owed bonus, all of that jazz was all paid out. Well, fast forward to July of this year and things take a turn. So the company received an anonymous tip which resulted in a, a further investigation by outside counsel, which determined that Easterbrook had had at least four consensual relationships, three of which occurred in his last year with the company. And over the course of the investigation, McDonald's found dozens of sexually explicit photos and videos of women, including these employees. 
So Easterbrook had, you know, I presumably cleverly from his perspective, he deleted a bunch of the photos from his company issued phone, uh, which is part of why they weren't initially discovered in the initial investigation. And this is, there's, I mean, this is just, there's so much stuff to sort of dig into here, Cam, but at least the first point to sort of speak to right here is, you know, employees, and I think I've said this before on the show, if I haven't, don't send any emails, don't draft any emails, don't draft any texts, don't attach any images to anything on any work device or work-related email unless you think that that content would be appropriate for your boss to sit and review. And I think that's a really, really good principle for any employee to sort of live by, that if I couldn't put this content in front of my boss and have them come to the conclusion that I hadn't done anything inappropriate, then I probably shouldn't be sending it. I am shocked that in the year 2020, this even has to be said, because I feel like people are more aware than ever about the security of their devices and of email networks and of their internet searches, like not even just workplace things, but in general. And of course, at work, I mean, I don't know how many people have said, you know, send this to me outside of the, you know, work email system, because all of that stuff is saved for regulatory reasons and can be gone back and looked through and everything like that. And it leads me to think, he must have also known this, but oftentimes in these cases, you get executives who just think that they are so powerful that it doesn't matter, that nobody would hold it against them anyway because of their position within the company. So I think there's some hubris that goes along with this. Yeah, yeah I, you're absolutely right. I mean, I've, I've seen a number of cases like this over the years. I mean, obviously nothing quite as high profile as this, but certainly uh, executives who are circulating this kind of inappropriate material. And what's interesting is I've seen sort of two themes. The first theme is that typically these are, well, predominantly men, um, but not only men, men of, of an older generation, men of a generation who weren't as teenagers and 20-somethings uh, exposed to things like Facebook and broadband internet connections, such that their reference point still remains something a little bit different than than what we're seeing sort of uh, among millennials and, and generation. Although he's not, he's not that old, though. I mean, so he was CEO, I think he was named when he was 50, or sorry, when, when he was let go, he was in his early 50s is what I had read. I mean, he's a decade older than me or 12 years older than me kind of thing. So he's not like fully like a, you know, way out of line. I still feel like this is stuff he should have been aware of. He's even a young looking guy, but I still take your point. I still think it's accurate uh, to some degree that this is something that oftentimes it's older people that end up in trouble with. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the first point. And the second point is simply the hubris that you've talked about that for a lot of executives, they assume that they're sort of beyond reproach in that regard, that no one's going to get to them, um, that nobody's going to be monitoring their email content, and that they're effectively safe. And the reality is, is that they're, they're not. And of course, all of this content is stored on a server somewhere. And it's not like any executive has the ability to sort of access that server and delete. You know, they delete it in their inbox, fine, but it's a there's there's a copy somewhere. Um, they're not going to have access 
to that copy. So just because you think you're safe and you deleted it from your inbox, you're not safe. If your employer launches a formal investigation, and and again, I've, I've certainly assisted with a number of these investigations, one of the first things we want to do is we want to look at the email content. I want to go back sometimes a couple of years, depending on what the, the allegations are against the employee, and have a look at what sort of content was this individual circulating. If there's any suspicion that there may have been something along these lines and of an inappropriate nature, you've got to gather your evidence. And the easiest way to do that is you do a data dump. I mean, you take the emails going back a couple of years, you, you pop them into, you know, a platform. There's a lot of really sophisticated software nowadays, cam platforms like relativity, where you can effectively dump thousands, millions of emails and you can really drill down to specific phrases, specific key terms, specific recipients, specific time periods to really get a sense of what was going on. And so I'm, I'm not surprised in the least that once they got this anonymous tip and external counsel came in and started to investigate that, you know, like a house of cards, the whole thing just very quickly fell apart. Yeah. And people need to understand, too. It's not um, I mean, companies are not keeping email records just because they want to snoop or because, uh, you know, they, 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 they want to find out things that are going on in the company just off the top of their heads. Like a, a lot of times this is regulatory. I mean, especially with financial companies or for people at Steve's level. I mean, these have to be kept. There's things in listing rules about this. Uh, and in terms of whatever business, whatever uh, industry that the business is in, that sometimes this, the, these records have to be kept by law, you know, pending these sort of future investigations or future situations. So, so these are kept and they're kept for exactly this reason. And it's why people should be very careful with it. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually, from, in, from the regulatory perspective. You're abs- absolutely right. I mean, I think with, with Easterbrook, the real problem here was that when he sat down with the board and they started to probe and ask him some questions, he lied right? He lied and said that he hadn't had relations with any other employees. And then he deleted the incriminating emails or, you know, prior to that meeting, presumably he would have deleted the incriminating emails. So he was dishonest. And one of the things they sort of talk about in, 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 you know, executive among executives and in law of this nature is this principle of tone from the top. And the idea that it's the CEO and the executives at the very top of the company that set the tone for the entire company. And that if you have an individual who's going around and engaging in this kind of conduct, it does not reflect well upon the company. And there can be very, very gross and severe implications from a, from a share price if you're a publicly traded company, or in terms of just uh, destroying a workplace culture that through you know a lot of hard work and policies and procedures a, a company is trying to promote there's a lot of angles to this so so first off you just mentioned that he uh, denied or he lied that there were other relationships I know he has since come out and said that uh, he hasn't been direct but his lawyer has said that the board was aware of everything at the time that the uh, negotiation for his his uh, severance was being negotiated. Um, so there, there's sort of a, a he said, he said uh, on that point. But, but you're right. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the argument at this point, which is that the, the company is saying, you know, they want some of their, their money back. So at the time that he was dismissed, he was given 26 weeks of severance and barred from working for a competitor for two years. Uh, and it looks like his stock awards were worth more than $37 million. 
and he was allowed to keep all of that as well. And the interesting side to this, Ewan, on the PR side, which you sort of alluded to, so this is bizarre behavior by McDonald's, the corporate, in fact. There is a bit of a playbook with this, which is when your CEO gets into a difficult situation or there's a scandal or there's some sort of personal issue, um, you, you want to pay him to go away and, and move on. <laughs> you know, you don't want to dwell on it too much after that. <clears throat> but the New York, uh, the um, McDonald's finds itself in a unique situation because while Easterbrook was the chief executive and the years before that, there were a number of cases of uh, sexual harassment or sexual assault inside the company. So there, it was a bit of a problem. And when Easterbrook was CEO, he vowed to clean that up and he did introduce sort of new internal policies on, on cracking down and having sort of a zero tolerance on on that kind of behavior so that's why it's sort of uh, extra incriminating uh, of easterbrook and the pr side that's bizarre here is that mcdonald's is going after him after the fact because it brings it out into the open again it gets a new round of coverage and i thought the bbc had a, a really good look at this i just want to read this this is direct from from a report from the bbc it said but this is not really about the 40 million it's about something much more important and current mr easterbrook is certainly not the first chief executive to be fired for inappropriate relationships with members of company staff and he won't be the last but this case stands out in one potentially very important way. Normally in cases like this, the board of directors is keen to move on as quickly as possible. Say that lessons have been learned, let the executive disappear into the sunset with a ton of cash, but basically pretend it never happened and hope not to have to talk about it ever again. They do this under the carpet treatment to protect the company from any brand and reputational damage that may accumulate by ongoing associations with scandal. Actively pursuing a former executive through the courts is a departure from this boardroom norm. So McDonald's here sees a possibility of a reputational win because of the issue, because it has to do with sort of a power dynamic and relationships in the office. McDonald's thinks it's made a bet that it's um, more important to go after him and demonstrate its seriousness on these issues than let it fade away. Well, that's an, that's a really interesting point, because my understanding, Cam, is that a number of the shareholder groups had initially con criticized the board's decision in terminating Easterbrook on a without cause basis. Right. Again, not alleging that there was any sort of gross misconduct uh, or, or willful disobedience on on Easterbrook's part, such that he could depart and and keep his shares and get paid out, that there was some initial criticism that this did, in fact, speak contrary to the image that the company was trying to promote. Actually, at the time, you when, 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 if we go back to that, because I remember these discussions, there, not everyone was in that boat, though, because a lot of people saw the work that Easterbrook had done to bring the share price up and turn the company around. Like I said, he was very highly regarded, and him leaving is not necessarily a good thing for the company in terms of its share price. So there was a lot of debate at that time over the uh, the reasons for letting him go, and even to some degree whether they should let him go. But I think the board decided this was something that had to happen, and it did have it did have wide support when it made its case. Okay. Well, I mean, the, the reality now is, of course, part of this lawsuit is they're asserting they're now asserting just cause after the fact, right? After acquired evidence, and this is a, this is sort of an interesting principle of employment law, Cam, which is 
and this happens more frequently than you might think where, you know, a, a company has a falling out with an employee or they feel a need to let that employee go for any number of reasons, be it the financial impact of the company or, you know, things just aren't working out with the employee and they let them go on a without cause basis. So they pay them out their severance and um, bonus pay, what have you, whatever part of their compensation is relevant. And then after the fact, through sometimes through happenstance, you know, they're, they're combing through some emails on a related topic and they find something and very, very quickly they start to realize that this employee that they had recently terminated, um, was not who they thought they were and that there was all kinds of very, very incriminating and, and seriously inappropriate behavior and conduct committed by this employee. Well, in those circumstances, the employer absolutely has a right to assert this principle of after acquired cause to say that, well, we didn't know at the time when we let you go that there was all of this other inappropriate behavior. But now that we've learned about it and it's come into the light, we're changing our position and no longer are we terminating you on a without cause basis. We're going to assert after acquired cause, meaning we're going to come after you for those severance payments the bonus and we're going to we're going to attempt to claw it back not only are we going to attempt to claw it back but we may sue you for additional damages above and beyond be it for reputational damage to the company depending on what the conduct was etc cetera, etc cetera. so if you if you are one of these employees and you know you, you are let go and you're paid severance and you think oh gosh i got away got away with that i got lucky um, well don't be don't be so sure because if the company after the fact learns about all of that other inappropriate behavior, there could be some very serious repercussions as, as Easterbrook is, is learning right now. Yeah. And I think um, this applies particularly to people who are not sort of business celebrities or CEOs uh, because there, there isn't, it's not a, a battle that plays out in public often, but in these kinds of cases, I think a good example is a few years ago when the CEO of HP, uh, Mark Hurd also had a relationship uh, with someone in the, in, in the office uh, he was let go quickly and disappeared, which follows the playbook here. Because I understand your 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 point about there is recourse to go after them if they find more information. But the downside of that is bringing this fight into the open in front of the press, and it could go for many months. And so there has to be a decision made. Is this worth it? Do we want to get involved in this? Do we want our dirty laundry aired? Because, I mean, obviously Easterbrook's going to come back with his own defense. Um, so it's something that's going to play out very publicly. And that's why this has sort of uh, gone against the usual playbook in this kind of a case. And I kind of applaud McDonald's for doing it. I mean, there is a uh, a win here because of what it involves. And, and I can imagine last year, if they find out he had uh, a relationship with one person and it was consensual, went against company policy and they tell him, look, like you have to go. Even though they were happy with his performance, they can't keep him on and claim to have a serious policy uh, on this. So they let him go, and that's fine. And I doubt there was too much animosity at that time. But when they find more, and when the, when the staff knows there's more, that's another big issue. Because you're publicly touting a policy and a change to try and change behavior inside the company and say that you take sexual harassment seriously. So McDonald's has to come in here and show to its own employees, really, as sort of the, the, the main audience of this, that they do take it seriously and they're going to go after it. Yeah, well, and, you know, again, we're also, 
I think executives and boards often make a number of assumptions here that they think that they have the ability to sort of sweep this under the rug that, you know, they'll give the executive the golden parachute. He'll sail off into the sunset and that'll be the end of it. I mean, employees talk. We know that. And in this day and age, there are more and more means for those employees to communicate information in a confidential and surreptitious fashion, be it through, you know, an external instant messaging app. I mean, all kinds of means beyond the traditional means of sitting down face to face and say, hey, did you hear about such and such? Um, this stuff is going to get out. So, I, you know, my, my counsel typically to employers in this situation is, if you're aware of this, you have to act upon the information. You can't pretend it doesn't exist. You could also be faced with, you know, with with um, potential violations of not coming to the court with clean hands if if this in, in 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 fact ends up in front of a judge. I mean, every individual that goes before the court has this this duty, this fundamental principle of coming to the court with quote unquote clean hands, which is exactly what it sounds like. The idea that you're being honest and fulsome in your in 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 your claim or in your defense. So, you know, I, I, I'm, I have concerns about the idea of, well, let's just sweep it under the rug. But also, Cam, I thought this tied in nicely with what we were talking about last week in the, the Ellen DeGeneres debacle. And, you know, we talked about the value of conducting an external investigation, right? Bringing in a, an independent third party to have a look at what's going on in the company from top to bottom. And that's clearly what, what McDonald's did here, which was part of how they got to this information. And I think, uh, you know, you can sort of see on one hand what happens when you do that. And then you can look at Ellen, you can see on the other hand, what happens when you don't, that the information just is, as you, you know, you pointed out last week, it just keeps spilling out and spilling out and only makes matters worse. Yeah, we did talk about that. And I think there was a key point there that I really want to under underline now. Obviously, the best way to manage this is a get all of the information out, find out everything that's happened. So you're no longer surprised by anything that happens. But also once you have all of the information, you can then make really, really sort of informed decisions about what to do next. So the, I mean, obviously, it's it's best case to say, okay, let's get an an independent third party group in here to investigate everything that's happened and get a clear picture. That works for McDonald's because it looks like you know Easterbrook was involved with employees, so it it wasn't something that touched on the board or potentially other senior executives necessarily. Um, I think the issue with Ellen DeGeneres is Ellen DeGeneres may be part of the problem and may be aware of a lot of that. So it, it doesn't make sense for her to call in a third party because she'll be shooting herself if she does that. So again, from a, from a PR perspective, you want to get all of it out at least internally. So everybody, so Ellen knows what's going on as a sort of head of that show. I mean, it's Warner that owns the show and Warner is doing an investigation, but it's interesting that they are keeping it in house because if there is strong evidence that Ellen uh, was part of this or knew about it or, um, you know, was it was in any way a party to this, that could mean the end of her show and the end of a lot of money for Warner. So. So they want to try and keep it in-house, at least while there's that threat there. So it doesn't really make sense for them or in their own best best interest, but it does for McDonald's. And I think that 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 difference does matter. Yeah, okay. That's a, that's actually really, that's a very good point, Cameron. Well put. 
anyway, I think um, it's going to be very interesting to see here because I, I mean, like you say, you can't really, you know, sort of shove it under the carpet. But I mean, that is what companies have done for for a very long time. And, you know, even when they find other other information, it's very easy. I mean, boards don't want to go through this. I mean, let me tell like <laughs> boards want to see good results and to have good briefings with their with their chief executives or their chairman you know, presenting or whatever, and and move on without too much trouble. Think about strategy, think about the future. This is not pleasant uh, going through this sort of thing. So it would have been very easy for that other, the, the staffer at McDonald's who tipped off management again recently, they could go back and say, we've already let him go. We've already moved on. This This era is already finished. Let's not reopen it. And that would have been a very easy thing to do. But like we talked about, the message that that sends to the staff is not very strong, especially if the staff knows a lot of what has happened. Um, so I, I think McDonald's really does deserve some credit for, for, for the way that they have um, gone through with this. And I know that, uh, I mean, this is now going to play out in the headlines for, for a while and we're going to be able to see exactly what happens. Yeah. Well, and just as a final point on that, McDonald's is potentially exposing themselves to a great deal of, uh, of risk here as well, Cam, because if this starts to play out in front of the courts, part of that process is going to be the disclosure of all relevant information from both sides of the table. And we don't know what emails Easterbrook has. He may have a bunch of emails that demonstrate that, in fact, the board was aware of the additional relationships and that they knew all along and yet chose to still let him go on a without cause basis and and not address it. And I think if he has, and sometimes, you know, these, these, these big multi-million dollar pieces of litigation, sometimes they can in fact come down to that one smoking gun email mm-hmm. where, you know, you have a correspondence, for example, with Easterbrook and the board where they're talking about all these relationships and that's it, right? I mean, their whole argument is premised on the fact that they didn't know about all of this additional information. So if there's any evidence out there, any emails, anything that demonstrates that that isn't true, um, you know, the whole thing could fall apart and the PR fallout from that for McDonald's could be significant. You went, that is, ex- that is, that is also very well said because that's exactly why companies don't usually do this. It's exactly why, I mean, they know the chief executive has done something wrong. The chief executive knows, pay him a bunch of money and get him to go away. It's the easiest, simplest thing to do. And you can move on and present it sort of united front to the public. Um, so, so yeah, opening, opening this is, is a risk for McDonald's as well. But I have to assume that they would have gone through these emails. I assume that they would know at least what was sent on sort of company uh, using the company domain and the company email system. They would at least have those records. So obviously somewhere in there, I mean, like the BBC article said, McDonald's does see some kind of win in here. Uh, and it's going to be, it'll be really interesting to see if that actually comes to be. Show your support to the PR and Law Podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRNLawPodcast.com. That's PRNLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. All right, Ewan, we've talked in the past about social media and how social media is used by companies and how social media can get people into trouble. But we haven't looked carefully at what are some strategies or best practice for companies to use social media and how it could be used in their own benefit. Okay. 
So I kind of wanted to go over a couple of things today. And I bring this up because honestly, I'm asked about this a lot. And I mean, I'm in Hong Kong, which is a very different, to some degree, social media market than the United States or Canada, but there's still some overlap there. And, you know, the, the interesting thing too, Ewan, is social media has been around now for more than a decade. I believe Twitter came out in 07 or 08, uh, and Facebook was around years before that. So, so I mean, social media is not new, um, but still a lot of companies and a lot of people are still struggling with how to use it correctly. So um, I, I just want to talk about a couple of tips or a couple of things to think about when you're planning your, your communications. And I think the first stat, and this scares me, but 55% of Americans get their news from social media, their primary news. Um, uh, and that's a result of a survey done last year. And I think, um, I suspect that's probably only gone up since then, despite the, despite the sort of negative social media coverage that we've seen recently of social companies, but it is a place, I mean, Facebook in particular, I think, you know, Twitter is a very news driven social network, but it's dwarfed by Facebook in size. Uh, and a lot of people, people in my own family, you know, some people I know as friends, they, they log into Facebook and scroll through their newsfeed and they see articles there in various publications, some of them not legit. I'd say many of them not legit publications. And that's where they get their news. And so that's, I think, the first thing we really have to understand before we even start. Yeah, that I know this happens, but whenever I hear about it, it just sort of generally terrifies me that, you know, interspersed with articles about you know what certain family members baked over the weekend you're you're sort of consuming some news article about fill in the blank it just it really strikes me as problematic um but i i don't really know how you fix it either well you know what's interesting Uh, my own theory and this is just my own thinking on it is um the older generation in particular kind of grew up in a time where something was printed in a newspaper um, or was broadcast on TV or, or was somehow published somewhere, that it was credible, that it must have gone through you know, a fact check or an edit and, and put out there. And I think now, I mean, we saw in 2016 uh, with some of the sort of fake stories that Russian bots were pushing, you can quickly create a website that looks like a legitimate news site very easily and write whatever you want on there. I mean, I know the famous one from 2016 was about the Pope endorsing Donald Trump. But if you write a headline like that and you put it on Facebook and you pay a hundred bucks, you can get that in front of 500,000 people or a million people. And you know, the reality is a lot of people don't look closely at the domain. They see the headline, you know, Facebook takes the link and it makes it look nice with a headline and an excerpt and a photo. And unless you're really paying attention at the actual URL, the domain of that story, it looks like it come from CNN or The Guardian or anywhere else. And I think um, even still, that's a big problem. I, I guess I but I go back to my original question. What, what can we do to fix this? How do you fix this? All right. That's a whole, that's another show. Uh, that's another Well, I think show that's too. probably a whole podcast yeah. unto itself, yeah. right? On a, on a week by week basis. But I, I get that it's a loaded, uh, a loaded question, but um, it's something I, mean, I follow we, we, very closely. I mean, the, the way the news business has changed and the way people um, consume information, yeah, it has changed a lot. Um, but I'll keep on topic here. I mean, so for companies, I mean, knowing that is is a, is a key factor. Um, and the one thing I do still feel like a lot of companies overlook, I, I still say to everyone, the first step is listening. 
you have to set up either a service or software or some tool to pull in what the discussions are about your brand online. Because no matter what you do, if you have an employee or you have a customer, your name's out there somewhere. Someone has said something about you and you have to know what that is. And so the first step really is setting up a social listening um, plan where you can you know, see what people have said about you on Facebook or on Twitter, if it's positive or negative, or if they've identified some, some issue that you weren't aware of, whatever it might be. I mean, you wouldn't jump into a conversation cold. You wouldn't walk into a room and just insert yourself into a conversation. You would wait and listen a little bit, see what they're talking about, see what the tone is, you know, see who the players are and what the points are, and then make your entrance to the conversation. And it should be done the same way on social media. So that's really step one. I, I mean, I, I think even there we're making certain assumptions, Cam, that people in, when they're, <laughs> when they're in the midst of other individuals talking on a topic that they, they do wait and try and gather some basic information in terms of <laughs> the topic, the, the relevant perspectives before interjecting and, and putting their opinion forth. I mean, I, I, I would like to think we live in a world where everyone does that, but yeah, I, I just do don't know thinking. if I believe that that's the case. <laughs> the second point, and I've heard this a lot, uh, and it's to do a content calendar. So to think about, you know, what is your company doing? What are some initiatives coming up? What are some announcements? If you're in a company that, you know, creates products, uh, when are the new products being unveiled? Is there an anniversary celebration coming up? Whatever it might be. And you want to put together a, a content calendar that goes up to, you know, three, four months in advance. I am seeing, though, recently and i'm happy to see this because i've never been a huge fan of planning that far in advance because so much can change in the interim and if you go by that route it means you're not really following along with the zeitgeist for lack of a better term um the tone of conversation and the development sort of in terms of the news cycle and politics and so many other things going on um, can drastically change what your post should be. So I think, you know, there was one good example that I saw online. So if your uh, tagline is finger licking good, which we know does belong to a particular fast food company, you don't want to put finger licking good out in the middle of a pandemic. Not, not really appropriate. <laughs> So, and I mean, and I have seen this many, many times. Um, I've seen other companies do this and I've seen companies that I've worked for also almost do them because someone writes something, it looks good. They think it's ready to go, but they aren't aware of something else that has gone on and that the context of this is different. And the context being different means the reaction to that content is going to be different. And so you have to be aware of those things. So I, I lean towards having sort of a, a large calendar that does look ahead to some key sort of milestones or events that are on the horizon, but not to plan out the exact wording and exact approach uh, because it could, it could change and oftentimes does change in my own experience. Well, I mean, how much work is required in terms of doing that? I mean, I'm thinking that I get this, it's sort of top tier companies that are, you know, in several countries around the world, but what about sort of smaller businesses, you know, businesses that maybe only have a uh, hundred employees in a competitive marketplace or a few, you know, or a few thousand employees even, I mean, and don't necessarily have the resources for an entire sort of PR marketing department. I mean, what, what are some things that companies like that can do in this regard? 
So, so first of all, I, when someone comes to me and says, we need a social media strategy, um, I, I think that's absolutely a wrong way to look at it. I think if it, whether you're in a small company or a large one, you have a communication strategy. You have what, what you want to communicate and how to, to the audience. Social media is just one component of that. There's many other things that you will do as well, either through news releases or meetings with journalists or other stakeholders or phone calls or conference calls or you know, results announcements or speeches. or you know, There's a number of things. And social media is one. So you want to incorporate that into an overall communications plan. And I think if it's a company smaller, 100 people, 10 people even, it's even more important, honestly, because social media and websites is your way to market yourself. If you're good online and if you post regularly, if you blog regularly, I mean, content is really big right now, especially. So, I mean, even for instance, with your firm, you and I'm just using this as an example, you know, your firm is relatively new, um, but I would recommend any relatively new firm to, to blog fairly regularly about their expertise, things that they're coming across, provide advice, because it allows people to get to know you. And I think a, a one good example of this, I think we've brought up before, is the China Law Blog. Um, it's a blog that's been online for a very long time, going back to early 2000s, I think. Um, but they blog regularly about issues related to China and U.S. companies going into China and some of the changes happening in China, how they hire people, you know, what the what the protocols are. And through those blogs, they've been able to demonstrate their own knowledge and their own expertise in this area. And it's a very tiny law firm in Washington state. Um, but they have now a sort of a, a global reputation and that's all through sort of their work online. So I, I do think it's really important uh, to identify the areas you can make a difference and then, and then proceed. Mm, okay. Well, on China law blog, great example. I agree there. It, it's fantastic. I even referred to them. I mean, they've been around quite a while because mm -hmm. I can remember referring to them um, for stuff back when I was in law school. Um, but yeah, great, a great example. So basically what you're saying, Cam is content, content still is king. If, if you're a small shop and you're trying to build a profile and get out in front of your competitors um, and stay nimble, content, content, content. Yeah. And I can talk a little more about this. So, I mean, we've all heard of SEO. I mean, it's a term that gets uh, thrown around. It stands for search engine optimization. And back in the day, this basically meant, you know, make sure you have a title on your, on your website, make sure if someone clicks an article, the title is in, 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 in the proper place and that you've got photos and the photo is described somewhere. It's a lot of sort of behind the scenes tagging that happens. So when Google searches, it's looking for these tags. And if it finds a lot of them and things are done correctly and it looks credible, then they can raise the, the, the standing in the social or the results, the search results. So SEO has always been important, but it, it has gone a lot further these days. And, and one of those is related to content creation because now, depending on what field you're in, you can actually do some searches and find out what are people searching for that is related to your business. And through that, you can plan content. And if you tag it correctly, and if you, if you do good SEO on it, it will place very highly because people are already searching for it. And so these sort of tips can really help a business. I mean, it can make the difference between, you know, showing up potentially in thousands or tens of thousands of results or just a handful. Um, and a lot of people aren't really sure how to do this because if you're going to go into SEO to that degree, and focus on content creation to that degree, you're, you'll probably need uh, some help. 
Um, yeah, I think that's the best way to put it because it can potentially get quite complicated, but I, but I do think it's uh, it's an important way, especially if you're a company that's not well known yet, uh, or if it's a company without much of a track record, these are the ways that you can get on people's radar. Mm, okay. This is good advice. I'm t- I've been taking some notes. Uh, of course, this also underscores the problem, part of the problem of what you're talking about. And I've certainly seen this when, you know, I've done some searches for, for relevant stuff in the employment realm. And I've come across articles by, you know, sort of prominent bloggers and the information is wrong. I mean, the law is wrong and it's posted on a, on a blog and, and I get it, you know, and the content is king sort of world. Probably somebody's trying to quickly get a post up and then move on to the next thing. But, um, you know, that that's problematic when the information that goes up, regardless of the, whether it had the best of intentions is inaccurate because it's then there for public to consume. And if you're deemed to be sort of a, a content expert on your in your particular field, people rely on that information. And, you know, it's a great example of how it can be really difficult to sort of separate what is useful and accurate from, from what isn't. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it is an opportunity. If you come across something like that, or if anyone comes across some inaccurate but high-profile information, that, that's a golden opportunity to actually write about that to actually link to that page, to quote their inaccuracy and to set the record straight. Uh, because there's potential, again, that, that your sort of contradictory post um, can, can be raised as well. And, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, the, the best way for any of your business's pages to, to, result, to, to be placed higher on search results is having incoming links. I mean, there's a lot of things we have to do on SEO, but incoming links are kind of the, the number one gold standard. If you have companies linking to you, if you have people linking to you from social, um, if you've got credible places linking to you, that will shoot your page up much faster um, than anything else. So correcting something like that would be, would be one way to start. Mm, that's great <laughs> advice too. Okay, that's good to know. Okay, so uh, the third one obviously is the content um, itself. And I just mentioned, you know, the tone really has to be right um, when you're when you're looking at at this sort of thing. And I think these are very basic, but yet I still think worth mentioning. I think the content should be honest, relatable uh, content. You don't want to drop a whole bunch of buzzwords. You don't want to. It's not a it's not a press release. It's not overly formal. The tone on social media is more conversational. Um, but you can go too far that way. If you think, um, you know, that it's a bunch of kids on social and you want to try and act as though you're younger or you want to position your company as younger, that's not authentic at all. You do want to be you. And, and that's the best way that people can come across your company and relate to you. And I think that is something that, that, that is often missed. If we look at crises, though, I mean, what happens when something bad happens or... Uh, you know, one of your products, I mean, in cases where, you know, there's been phones that, that, that explode, for instance, with a bad battery, or, I mean, even to some degree, the Easterbrook case um, with McDonald's, even COVID-19 to, for, for many companies, depending on the, the, the business that they're in, um, a crisis can result. And I think it's the same here. Like when I say there's communication strategy, not social media strategy, same on crisis. You should have a crisis communications plan and a social media plan is part of that. It's one leg of that stool. So, um, I mean, the first thing in advance, if you're planning now, you absolutely want to have names of people and positions involved. So if you're planning in advance for something, make sure it's really clear who's responsible and who's doing what. And then secondly, obviously logging into these accounts 
I mean, this is often overlooked too. Something happens and the CEO or executive wants a message out right now, but nobody knows what the password is or whoever has been posting is on holiday and it was just logged in on their computer and nobody else knows how to get that person now. Um, this, this does happen. And so there has to be access information, hopefully encrypted and saved somewhere where the people that need it know where to find it. And that that information is up to date again, very basic, but this is a hurdle a lot of times in bad situations because crises only happen and, you know, hopefully it never, but, um, you know, it might be only once every few years that you really sort of hit this level of urgency. Uh, and that, that, that data has to be there. Yeah. And I suspect that that is a common problem, particularly at smaller companies, right? Where you may have a department of one (laughs) where it's not even an official title, but, you know, you have been designated as the employee who's going to monitor these things and stay on top of this stuff. And no one else has any ability to sort of interact with the software or the hardware or access these networks or passwords. And when that individual sort of disappears or is away on vacation, the whole apparatus very quickly collapses. Yeah. It's very dangerous for that sort of thing. Uh, a lot of times, sometimes that person leaves too. Maybe they've resigned and left and just nobody really picked it up, but now something's happened. And yeah, like you say, nobody knows how to, how to get in there and, and, and deal with it. Um, I think another one, I mean, obviously it's important to be fast but it's not important to be the fastest. Um, and I think an extra beat, an extra minute, a little bit of extra time just to make sure, give it another read, let someone else see it. Um, you know, make sure that it's been vetted, even if you're in a huge rush, um, because it has to be accurate because the spotlight will be on you already. So, in a normal environment, and this has happened to me, um, you know, I have tweeted things from corporate accounts and realized there's a mistake or realized I missed punctuation or used the wrong word, whatever. Um, I can quickly delete it. And usually, uh, seriously, that's no big deal. I mean, no one's you know focusing on you per se. Maybe a couple of people saw it, but it's gone. Um, and it's unlikely that people would have taken screenshots that quickly. But if you're in a crisis, that probably means that journalists and um, others have alerts set on your account. And so that means when you post something, everybody gets an alert right away and sees it. So in that case, it's much worse if you end up putting out something that is either inaccurate or incorrect uh, or with mistakes and deleting it only makes it worse because people are unforgiving once you already find yourself in a crisis. So, you know, they look for reasons to sort of double down on it. Yeah, we, you know, we've talked about this in the context of some of the doxing incidents we've seen lately, right, where there's pressure all of a sudden applied through social media hordes to a to a company to react to an employee or an individual who is, you know, in public engaging in just grossly inappropriate behavior, be it, you know, racist, discriminatory, misogynistic, whatever, whatever the, the, the issue is and the pressure on those companies to react quickly. And, you know, it's been 12 hours. We still haven't heard anything from the company, but I think this is a great example of your point, Cam, that the message has to be right. And if as a company, yes, you have to react fast, but if it means you have to take a couple extra hours to make sure that the message you're putting out is accurate and is correct and is concise, take that time because the implications of not doing it properly are far more severe than the, the additional hours that may, um, that, that may occur before the message goes out. Absolutely. Very, very well said. Um, I mean, the one thing that has kept me up at night um, as responsible often for these accounts 
uh, is being hacked because there have been a number of cases, even most recently we discussed on the show, um, President Trump's account was was hacked and, and several other high profile people um, related to Bitcoin or, or cryptocurrencies and they pushed out messages. But there have been a number of instances where corporate accounts have somehow been, been, been um, hacked or, or people have gotten access through sort of other means, maybe not technically a hack, but somehow finding out the password or whatever it might be. So my advice always, especially with Twitter, they have two-factor authentication, turn it on, absolutely turn it on, and then make sure you know where those codes are or whose phone has um, you know, access as, as the second factor, as the second device. Um, that stuff uh, is all really important uh, because if someone gets into your account they have carte blanche for quite a while because the first thing they do is change your password so you can no longer get in. And now they've got your your Twitter account and they can tweet at will and there's nothing you can do to stop them. And uh, this is the one situation that has always deeply frightened me <laughs> because it's basically, it, I mean, if, if you're a social media manager or, or in communications, if this happens because of some oversight on your own part, like you didn't have a difficult password or 2FA was not turned on, this is a fireable offense, very easily a fireable offense, and it could deeply hurt your career, especially if you're in social media. Um, so that is absolutely something that, that companies need to pay attention to. And the other one is just who has access to these accounts. I think one of the most famous incidents, it's way back in 2013, uh, but it's when HMV uh, was basically closing down and an employee who was called to the meeting where basically everybody was being laid off, he live tweeted from HMV's Twitter account everything that was said in that meeting with employees. And again, horribly embarrassing uh, for HMV. And there was not really a way for them to stop him because he was laid off. I mean, we've talked about this, you and how you can sort of claw back uh, any, any severance for, for bad behavior. And this would certainly count as bad behavior. But my guess is this person was probably quite young, probably not paid very much at all. Uh, and once he realized he was being let go anyway, I think he felt that he had no, 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 no recourse, no problem, no trouble, just sort of putting, putting this information out there. And that's also a, a big concern. Oh yeah. No, I suspect you're, I suspect you're right. Uh, it was probably one of these nothing to lose situations, which you definitely see from, from some employees who have an ax to grind. Um, and again, this is part of why, you know, treat your, treat your employees right. And hopefully they will do the same in return. And really quickly, obviously share only reliable sources. Again, this should be straightforward. The president doesn't often do this, uh, but especially if you're dealing with things like COVID-19 um, or security or safety uh, in any way, um, make sure that you're directing people to information um, that they can trust. And lastly, um, I think companies don't do this enough, um, but when, when there's an announcement or a crisis or something going on, listening to the uh, reaction to that, or as we say, how something lands is really critical. Um, and again, because I've left the exchange now, I can kind of talk about it a little bit more. But when I worked at the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, you know, we would often prepare an announcement or, um, you know, we, we had a chief executive blog there that was, was really influential and was picked up by financial media usually. And what we would do often is maybe we announce a major new initiative and we put out a news release and we have a briefing. Um, but we also plan a blog post, a chief executive sort of more personal um, thought leadership piece to go with it. 
and we would have a skeleton of that, but we would wait to see how the announcement landed first. Because once you start getting the media writing about your announcement, uh, you get columnists, you get people coming back with their points of view or their opinions, you can figure out what you should address, what needs to be clarified, what needs to be reemphasized, um, you know, how should we approach this? And that little break between announcement time and then sort of being addressed a second time can be really valuable. And that applies to social media as well. So using the listening tools out there, find out what people are saying on social media about you, what trade magazines are saying about you, um, that kind of thing. And then address, push it forward um, with, with, with a second sort of stab at it to try and, to try and uh, win public opinion over to your side. Good, good advice. I could talk about this forever. I think we will address um, other things. There's actually a long list of things um, related to this topic that I could go through, but I see we're we're, we're already running out of time, so I don't want to go too long on it. Um, But I think we will come back to it in a future show because there's a lot more here. Social media obviously is very important um, these days, and it's the subject I I really do get asked asked about um, the most. So it's important, and uh, indeed, we will come back to it. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Check this out. Whoa, hey, check this out. No, no, wait, wait. Check it out, check it out. I want you to check this out. On the PRN Law Podcast. All right, Ewan, what have you got? (laughs) Well, very, very quickly. Like, Like all television shows, Cameron, I feel like I always come to things way after they've sort of been out and and consumed by the vast majority of people. But uh, I was recommended to check out the show Norseman on Netflix. I don't know if you've heard of this show. It is in its third season now, I believe. Third season, I think. They just it it just dropped. The show is set in 790, Cameron, in hmm. a Viking village called Norheim. This is a Norwegian production. And the show was filmed simultaneously in Norwegian and in English. So there, there are no subtitles for anyone who's subtitle adverse. And all of the cast members are from Norway. Apparently, this was one of the most popular shows that had ever aired in the history of Norwegian television. And to describe it, Cam, um, I think I, I, an article, I saw an article that sort of described it best. And it's like Game of Thrones meets The Office <laughs> with probably some Monty Python sprinkled on top. I have never seen a show quite like this. The tone is very, very difficult to describe. Um, but it's a, it's a, a really, truly bizarre program that is really quite funny in the most deadpan, black, straightforward kind of way. You know, you have uh, warriors, Viking warriors who are out pillaging other communities uh, and then coming back and dealing with the day-to-day domestic issues that you may have been dealing with in 790, such as, you know, your your slaves that are doing work for you, possibly running away. Um, you know, a, a a in one particular sequence, I saw one of the characters had uh, recently widowed or married a a widowed woman on account of he being the one who killed her husband, <laughs> and they were engaging in a couple's party because the, the wife thought, you know, they needed to get to know each other a bit better. And part of getting to know each other would be attending couples party. And he's a warrior and he just wants to go out and pillage. And now he finds himself at a, at a dinner party where he's supposed to recite poetry, albeit horribly. It's a truly uh, unique 
program. I don't know that I've seen anything like it. Uh, anyway, that's my well, sort of recommendation for the week for people to check out. I've heard the name, know nothing about it. You scared me a little bit when you said Game of Thrones. I think you know my opinion of Game of Thrones, dog. Once once people start flying on dragons, I'm out. Um, but is there anything sort of surreal like that, or is it realistic? Everything that happens, it's very it actually part of I think what's so engaging about it is it's extremely realistic realistic in from a historical perspective in terms of the village is very realistic the the costuming is very realistic i haven't i don't know if they introduce any sort of uh fantastical fantasy like elements later in the show but no there 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 are no dragons there there is no magic um in fact magic comes up on account of a uh (laughs) a quote-unquote actor who has come from uh i believe he was he'd come to the village as a slave from from rome and he was a popular popular and prominent actor and of course the village in uh in norway they've never heard of actors and he does a pantomime and everyone thinks he has magical powers on account of his ability to demonstrate that he's trapped in an invisible box. <laughs> so that's about as close as they get to, okay, to magic good. as yeah. I've seen so far. So I don't think that'll be an issue for you. Yeah. The second I see flying dragons, I'm out. Um, the thing that I want to mention this week, I have been enthralled with. I was reading an article about something. I don't remember what it was on Friday. Uh, and it mentioned this podcast called Once Upon a Time in the Valley. And I started listening to it knowing very little about what it was about. And in uh, the last two days, so Saturday and Sunday, I've listened to the first seven episodes already. Uh, I think they come out every Tuesday. And I believe there's 11 episodes in total. So it's, it's good for a few more weeks. But Ewan, tell me if you have heard anything about this. I had not. Uh, this is a true story about the porn industry in the United States. And I guess in the uh, 60s and 70s, obviously, it was a very, very seedy industry, mostly out of New York City. Um, But in the early 80s, when sort of VHS tapes were out, I guess the porn industry became, like right away, overnight, it became very, very big um, because people were now able to either rent um, or buy titles themselves and be able to watch it in their own home. And up up until that point, obviously, you had to go to some sketchy theater on the outskirts of town to, to, to see something like that. Um, but as this was really gaining steam, um, a girl went into one of the agent's offices and uh, had her photo taken, and she launched her career in the porn industry. Her name was Tracy Lords, and it turned out three years later, after she was already the biggest star the industry had ever known, that she was underage. And as a result, it nearly brought the entire industry down in the mid to late 80s. And there is uh, some very contrasting stories about what happened. There's her version, which she's published in a book, I guess, in the 90s. Uh, And then there's the porn industry's side. And this podcast goes into all of that uh, from multiple different points of view. But in doing so, interviews some really crazy, interesting, off-the-wall characters that are extremely endearing, actually. And I think the the biggest one is a guy by the name of Jim South, who came from Texas. But he ran this company called World Modeling, 
um, and he's the one that gave a lot of these women their start, and his story is fascinating. So I, I have not been able to stop listening to this. I think the hosts of the podcast are not great. It's a little bit cheesy, but the story is absolutely engrossing, and uh, I do recommend people listen to it because it's so different. And also let us know what you think if you do. Oh, okay. I, I will listen and let you know what I think because I'm, I'm not familiar with it and I certainly haven't checked it out thus far. Yeah, I would, I would love it because I am curious to know what other people think of the story um, because I think it is, it's obviously going to be controversial because she's so young, this girl. Uh, but also the things that she did makes you think she wasn't very young at all. So uh, yeah, we can talk about that maybe next week if you get a few of those in. Okay, I will do. Okay, last thing I just wanted to mention, I, I don't even really have anything specific here. I'm in a, a, a communications group. It's a Slack group with um, some folks in California. Um, most of them are all in California, actually. They're with a lot of the tech companies. And so there's a lot of sharing of content on there. And one, one guy shared uh, news about Quibi. And in case you're not aware, Quibi is one of the streaming services that was launched uh, during the pandemic. Uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg is behind it. Um, and it has been a monumental disaster. It was built on the premise that you would watch TV on your phone in portrait mode. So they that was their differentiating feature was you could watch in portrait mode on your phone in those little minutes in the day where you wanted to check content. So, you know, you're standing in line at the bank or, or whatever you might be doing. Um, it's been a disaster and there's a number of articles out there on just what a disaster has been. But one of the funniest, you is a, it's a, uh, it's a Twitter thread and it's actually recently, uh, that Quibi had posted on Twitter. Uh, and it said something along the lines of, okay, guys, we have three new shows out today. <laughs> and that was it. No names, no stars, no, no plots, no nothing. <laughs> Um, I, I will put a link to the show notes in that because I think the replies to that tweet are absolutely hilarious. Uh, and so there's been some great content going around making fun of uh, Quibi. And so I'll share that if you need a laugh. I wonder if this is in any way related to, I, I don't know if you saw this, but Ryan Reynolds posted a tweet um, talking about launching a new streaming service called Mint Mobile Plus. No, I have and, not seen this. And you, you, you click the link and it, it, it's not actually a joke. Ryan, Ryan Reynolds clearly bought a domain and created a streaming platform that only streams a single movie. And it's his 2003 film foolproof, um, <laughs> which is a, as I understand it, I haven't seen it, but an absolutely dreadful, dreadful movie. So it's basically just an elaborate gag talking about <laughs> this one movie of Ryan Reynolds and you go to it and it looks like a Netflix. It's got multiple films you can click on, but of course they're all just different images of Ryan Reynolds in the movie foolproof. Um, <laughs> it's streamed as he, as he references in 2003 DVD quality. Um, it's, wow. It's a pretty good bit. We can post a link to it in the show. But anyway, you just reminded me of that and talking about this. And that might even get more viewers than Quibi's getting, actually. But <laughs> I'm sure it probably already has. Yeah. Uh, anything else this week, Ewan, before we wrap it up? No, that's it. That's it, Cam. 
okay, great. Yeah, this this show flew by too. I was shocked when I looked at the time. I thought, how are we already an hour into this thing? Because it feels like we just started. But uh, thank you so much for staying with us on this. It's uh, it's great. If you did enjoy the show and you know all the stuff Ewan's talking about and I'm sharing as well, please tell a friend. Uh, that would be great. And you can follow us on social media as well. Our account name is PR Law Podcast. It's all one word. Uh, so you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And you can subscribe to the show on YouTube and or SoundCloud as well. Um, you can support us via Patreon, and the link to that is on our website at prlawpodcast.com. So thank you again for joining us this week. For you and Christy, this is Cam McMurchy. We'll see you next week. This has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and Ewan Christie. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support.